Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And what we found is that regardless of the balance of macronutrients in the diets of these locusts, they always ate to a point where they were closer to their target protein intake than carbohydrate intake. And what that showed us was that whereas these specific appetites for protein and carbohydrate in the case of locusts, they're normally working together to help guide the animal to a balanced diet. If you put the animal in the wrong nutritional environment, then these appetites are forced to compete and protein will win that competition. Your energy intake as a locust is going to be a function of the concentration of protein in your diet. Your diet. That's Professors David Robenheimer and Stephen J. Simpson. And this is the Plant Proof Podcast. Hello, my friends. Here we are. Pleasure to be joining you for another episode. I hope all is well at your end. For first-time listeners, welcome. It's great to be finally connected. Hopefully, this is the first of many times that we get to hang out together. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions. In a world of misinformation and disinformation, my goal, what I'm trying to achieve here, is to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and feel better for longer. I'm also a big believer in considering the effect our lifestyle choices have on the world around us. Another theme we'll explore together. Today I have the great pleasure of sitting down with Professors David Rabenheimer and Stephen J. Simpson. For over 30 years, David and Stephen, leading researchers from the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney, have tracked the patterns of appetites in insects, non-human animals, and humans. Their journey started together in nutrition science and took them from Oxford to Sydney via the Pacific island of Lifau to the deserts of Arizona, from slime molds and locusts to humans, from labs to jungles, and finally, to our modern processed food system. This all culminates in a unifying theory of nutrition outlined in their book, Eat Like the Animals, which was judged a new scientist best book of 2020. That's no small feat. In this exchange, David and Stephen share invaluable and fascinating lessons from nature for nutritional balance, weight control, and a longer life. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. David and Stephen, it's a pleasure to have both of you on the show. Eat Like the Animals, an absolute brilliant book. It's so, so interesting and really a a beautiful mix of storytelling and science. You must both be very proud of the final product. Yeah, thanks, Simon. We certainly enjoyed um, writing it. And, And even more enjoyed 
the decades that went into the content of it. So no, it's been a wonderful, a wonderful journey. Was it always something that was on the cards or something that the two of you had spoken about doing one day, translating all of the the, the various research that you'd done together into a a way that the everyday layperson could make sense of? Yes. Yes. I think the uh, it's been a two-stage transition, hasn't it, Dave? We initially wrote a book called The Nature of Nutrition in 2012, which was the first time we attempted at, at, at that point anyway to bring everything we'd done together in one place. And it was written accessibly, but it was still a science book. It was published by Princeton University Press. It was for a, a professional readership, but the hope was that it would be accessible to some degree anyhow to, to a lay readership. And then we decided that moving from there, we'd like to tell the story to a broader audience and a mass market, and hence that's where we ended up with Eat Like the Animals. The nature of nutrition was also very much um, more solidly centred on the background biology um, that we cover in Eat Like the Animals. Eat Like the Animals really was, um, as Steve said, in one respect, it was extending um, specifically for a lay audience, and in another, it was really focusing um, on humans and the implications of our biological work for humans. Well, I think you, you've certainly done a, a wonderful job and, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and then listening to the, the audio book. I've got to say, I did want to do this conversation in person because you're both based in Sydney, uh, but also because I just love stories about science and, and both of you have such a wonderful history with science going all the way back to your childhoods. What, what I'm thinking is today we spend a bit more time focused on the major learnings from your research and this idea of protein leverage. And then when restrictions relax a bit and lockdowns are behind us, we can perhaps get together in person and spend a bit more time learning about the pair of you as scientists and focus more on your journeys and the storytelling side of things. Why don't we start at a quite a high level here then? You have been working collaboratively for decades now. What is the the best way of describing your field of science. It's a, it's a little bit different to the sort of more typical nutrition science field. Well, that's, uh, that's a challenge. I think in some ways we've built a new field of science and certainly David's um, the, the key architect of an area called nutritional ecology. And really it's, it's been an example of the power of multidisciplinarity. The power of biology as, as an organizing principle or as a set of organizing principles, uh, a, a testament to the inspiration you can get by looking across the animal kingdom through an evolutionary perspective and integrating across these disciplines with behavior at the heart, feeding behavior at the heart, but being able to to really move seamlessly from deep within the mechanisms of behavior down in the molecular biology and neuroscience of behavior, all the way through to environmental influences and high-level ecology. So very much an integrative framework, um, which didn't exist before. And to that extent, it's a new field. 
Well, certainly the name, just in the way that we've developed it. And the, the, the big, I think the really central focus for us, both individually and together, is the way that behavior interfaces between the biology of the animal and the food environment within which it operates. You can see the obvious relevance of that to humans, which I'm sure we'll be discussing at length later on in our conversation. Um, so I think that that is where Steve and I really uh, overlapped extensively when we met. Steve was more heavily weighted towards experimental and mechanistic stuff, and me more heavily towards the um, observational and ecological stuff. But we both spanned the full scope and we met solidly in, in behavior. And that's how we came to be working together. Tell me, what are the, the, the major questions that your research has been focused on answering and, and why these questions? Where did your curiosity come from and why do you feel that these are or were important questions the big the big question well we appreciated fairly early on we both had a an interest from different perspectives in in why animals eat what they eat when they eat it why they select particular foods at particular times and we also we, we felt that there was a, a fundamental unfairness in the study of biology in that nutrition um, had been kind of relegated to the business of animal husbandry and um, home economics. I think it, it, it has no question compared with the three, you've got three big imperatives in biology, sex, death and food. And of the three, it had the worst rap. It was the, the least studied by biologists. It was the least considered to be interesting. Um, and I remember sitting at Oxford in a, in a um, uh, meeting where we were discussing curriculum and um, Richard Dawkins' esteemed colleague um, claimed that nutrition was wind and piss biology and therefore was not of sufficient interest um, to bother our undergraduate students. They needed to really concern themselves with evolution, sex and death. Um, and so we felt there was an unfairness there and nutrition touches and shapes everything in biology. It also touches and shapes everything in human affairs and human health. And yet it had, we thought, been done a disservice in part through the way it had been considered um, by nutritional biologists, both in the, the field of biology and ecology and both to a degree in the field of human health. So that was our, our particular interest, was around the complexity of nutrition. How do we understand that? How do we tame that? And how do we come up with fundamental insights that can help us explain as they have the human dilemma in a modern nutritional environment. Now, taming, taming is a really important word in, in, in the context of this conversation because when we set out, nutrition tended to fall at two ends of a spectrum, either overly complex where every little detail was studied tremendous um, um, accuracy and the problem is generalities wouldn't emerge from that. Too much information, too little synthesis of that information and theory to pull it together. 
Um, so that, for example, in animal nutritional sciences, that's, that, that certainly is the case. And then in the ecological sciences, it was the opposite end of the spectrum, where things were oversimplified, where all of nutrition was considered in terms of a single nutrient, typically energy or protein in some cases. And what we wanted to do is find a middle ground between those, where we had sufficient detail to understand the important patterns, but also sufficient generality to get a high level overview and see what is their significance and how can we predict and interpret things that are important um, through that level of um, nutritional study between too complex and too simple. Early on in your book, I love the way that you weaved in the work of your students and you make specific mention of Kaylee Johnson and Audrey Desatour who conducted their own interesting experiments that helped the pair of you sharpen your own hypotheses. What was so fascinating about their work? Well, I'll start with Katie's work. So Katie's work was very different in the sense that what she decided to do is follow in great detail and record in great detail the feeding behavior of a single animal in the wild or the semi-wild on the outskirts of Cape Town. And this was a baboon. And what she did is she followed this baboon, whose name was Stella, for 30 full and consecutive days, recording everything that the animal ate and how much of each thing she ate, and then took back samples to the chemical analysis laboratory to measure the nutrient content of everything she ate and therefore the diet of this baboon. And what she found was over the 30-day period, this uh, Stella the Baboon um, ate about 90 different foods. And it looked like a fairly random combination of opportunistically eating things that she came across. But when we did the um, calculations of the nutrient composition of the diet, we saw that it was anything but random. And that is there's a very tight relationship between the amount of protein and the amount of non-protein energy in the diet. So across the 30 days, she was using these 90 different foods to select a diet that was very precisely balanced in its macronutrient content to approximately 20% of energy from protein. So what appeared to be random actually turned out to be a very tight pattern that told us a lot about what the priorities of this animal um, are in its foraging activities in the wild. So was that something that that Stella the baboon was regulating on a daily basis and at the end of every day you were you were seeing this you know the same sort of macronutrient ratio as the next day or was it over a 30 day period no that's a great question it was actually both so on a day by day basis there was a very tight correlation and of course, if you plotted that cumulatively to understand her diet over the longer term, the 30-day period, which of course is a very important period because uh, the longer term, because that's what ultimately impacts on health, not daily intakes, but the accumulation into a, a longer term diet. So the answer is both of those things are true. Audrey Dusator was a, a, a different story. And Audrey had been working in my lab in Sydney for a little while, having moved from um, Montreal in Canada. She's French and had done a postdoc over in Montreal, um, actually with a colleague with whom I'd worked in Oxford on swarming in locusts, which is another story. 
Um, but Audrey came to the lab and she was really interested in the idea not only of how individuals regulate their intake of nutrients, but whether that same regulation happens at the level of colonies, um, in her case, colonies of ants. So we, we did these remarkable experiments looking at nutrient regulation at the colony level in ants. And Audrey has a capacity to sit and spend endless hours watching and assiduously recording uh, the behaviour of, of many ants within ant colonies and indeed was one of the pioneers in the field of, of um, collective behaviour, as it's called. So we, we were working on ants and then we had the chance to work on this weird single-celled slime mould, which is a, a thing which is very much like the, the real-life version of the blob in B-movie fame. Um, and this is a... a chunk of stuff that you can you can chop it in little pieces you can put it in a petri dish and it will grow its own tendrils and it'll move out across a petri dish seeking foods and it turned out to be able to balance its diet as remarkably as Stella the baboon even though it is nothing but a blob with no brain with no limbs without even um, a, a central organising place. It's just a single cell with loads and loads of different nuclei and it grows very organically and it, it extends itself across its environment. These things normally live in the leaf litter and they contribute to carbon sequestration and they're really important to us, but they're hardly ever seen. Um, and they're called some varieties are called dog vomit slime mold because they have that sort of yellow gooey appearance and they'll suddenly appear on a on a log and sit there for days and then dissipate so audrey um was a, a postdoc in the lab and we were working together on nutritional issues and the slime molds became a passion for a period. She's continued that actually back in France. She's recently written a book called Le Blob, um, written in French. So were these studies with Stella the Baboon and the slime mould before your now somewhat famous studies with locusts or after? And when it came to your studies with locusts, what were you specifically interested in looking at? It actually started with locusts and then Stella the Baboon and the blog were um, subsequent to that. And what we were testing in locusts is basically the question we started with, and that is how do other species so reliably select a balanced diet? And what we showed, we invented an approach at that stage. We spoke earlier on about an intermediate level of complexity in nutrition, not too simple and not too complex. And we invented an approach called nutritional geometry for studying nutrition at that level, engaging just as much complexity as we needed, but no more complexity. And we used that in experiments with the locusts to find out firstly whether they have selected a balanced diet and how they did it. And what we discovered is the way that they did it, they certainly did, and they did it using, using specific appetites for different nutrients. So when the animal's body needed protein, it would specifically be hungry for protein. When it needed carbohydrate, it wouldn't be hungry for protein, but it would specifically be hungry for carbohydrate. And in that way, it would be able to, to select foods and combine them in the right combination to balance the diet in the same way as what we saw Stella the Baboon and also the Blob do. 
We we started off challenging locusts um, to try and meet this regulatory challenge by um, designing experiments that made it, as we thought, um, near impossible for the animal to, to balance its diet and that at every occasion came up to the task. So if we diluted nutrients in food by adding indigestible cellulose, you could add up to five-fold more cellulose and the animal would simply eat five times more food to get to the same nutrient intake. You could give it different paired food choices containing different ratios and it would specifically eat the combination it needed to get to a target intake of protein and carbohydrate. And we tracked that right back to even the way the animal tastes its food. So the way in which its taste receptors respond to um, protein cues, amino acid um, stimuli, or sugar cues, which are associated obviously with carbohydrate, they change. So when the animal needs protein, its taste system selectively um, detects amino acids in foods and it therefore eats those foods. When it needs sugar, its um, taste receptors become specifically upregulated in their responsiveness to, to sugar in the food. So these animals were performing feats of nutritional wisdom that if they could do it, why on earth couldn't we? That was the question we asked very early on. Can you tell me sort of experimentally, I mean, in your book, you talk about the strongest sort of nutrient appetite being that for protein. How did you, how did you tease that out in your experiments? So easy enough. So the experiments we've just um, described to you, uh, the animal has a choice of different foods and can mix and match to compose a diet of whatever balance it wants. If you then confine it to one of a range of different foods, different groups of animals to food that differs systematically across the foods in the balance of macronutrients, then what you're doing is you're confining it to diets that are imbalanced with respect to that target that it would otherwise select. And you're asking the question of it when you can't eat both of those nutrients, in the case of locust protein and carbohydrate, in the right proportions, which, if any of those two, do you get closer to your target intake? In other words, which of those appetites is the stronger of the appetites? And what we found is that regardless of the balance of macronutrients in the diets of these locusts, they always ate to a point where they were closer to their target protein intake than carbohydrate intake. So that was the key finding of that set of experiments, showing that in imbalanced diets, they will eat to protein target. And as a consequence, carbohydrate would vary more or less passively with the ratio of macronutrients in the food that they were confined to. So if you diluted protein down, the, the locusts would over consume total calories in order to get sufficient protein to meet its requirements. If you diluted protein with carbohydrates specifically, then it would overeat carbohydrate to meet its specific requirements for protein. And this would result in the, in the locusts putting on weight? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And if you diluted protein with fiber, they would eat more but they wouldn't eat more calories because fiber in the case of a locust doesn't contain calories. It can't digest the fiber. But if you dilute protein with energy yielding macronutrients such as carbohydrate, then by eating more 
to get enough protein, it's consuming more calories. And what that showed us was that whereas these specific appetites for protein and carbohydrate in the case of locusts, they're normally working together to help guide the animal to a balanced diet. If you put the animal in the wrong nutritional environment where it can't do that, then these appetites are forced to compete and protein will win that competition. And hence, your energy intake as a locust is going to be a function of the concentration of protein in your diet. Why do you think this sort of biological appetite or craving is stronger for protein than other nutrients? Well, one important reason is that we can't store protein in the same way as we can store excess energy in the form of fat. Um, And what that means is that it's really important to achieve for ourselves and also for other species to achieve on a daily basis the required intakes of protein. The other thing, of course, is that so that would explain why we don't settle on too little protein in the way that animals will settle or locusts will settle on too little carbohydrate to get the right protein level. Why don't they eat too much protein? Well, one reason there is um, that, uh, um, again, they can't store it. So, so they can't store the excess. They have to um, they have to get rid of the excess and their costs involved in that, which, Steve, you'd like to take over from there. Yes, I think that, and that was a, a clue, actually, Simon. The, the fact that they cared about not eating too little protein made perfect sense because you need nitrogen and nitrogen comes in protein. If you're going to reproduce, maintain your tissues, grow, all of those biological functions rely on nitrogen. And the only macronutrients, the energy-yielding nutrients that form the majority of the diet that contains nitrogen uh, is protein. So you can understand why animals don't like eating too little protein. It comes at a cost to growth and reproduction. But why wouldn't they overconsume protein to the extent that they were willing to eat too little calories on a higher than optimal protein diet and hence for a locust end up too lean? And that's a real problem. We showed uh, they couldn't fly as long. They would be therefore less successful in migrating, which is one of the key um, life history events for a locust. It travels hundreds of kilometers in wings in wing swarms. If it couldn't do that, that's a real problem. They don't care what they look like. They don't care if they're lean and, and, um, and ripped. Uh, they just can't fly very long because they need the fat stores. So why on earth would that be the case? And that begged a question for us as evolutionary biologists, which is there must be some cost to eating too much protein. And and that, of course, led us into a whole series of experiments initially in um, insects and then ultimately in mice and by reference to human populations as well. I want to make sure we come back to that because protein restriction and longevity is is such a, a commonly sort of spoken about topic. I think it, it'll be important for us to to touch on that. In the book, you you talk about five main appetites. Can we can we sort of circle off on on what your research unearthed there in terms of why five, firstly, and and what are they? The five appetites, which are 
uh, possessed by virtually every animal that we've looked at uh, are the three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. We saw, for example, particularly strong fat appetites exhibited by predators, um, which, of course, fat is the principal source of energy in the diet of a predator, um, but fat, protein, and carbohydrate. And then two of the mineral micronutrients, sodium and calcium, and we showed, for example, early on a sodium appetite in locusts. They have the capacity to regulate very precisely their sodium or salt intake independently of their protein and carbohydrate intakes. Um, now, why those particular appetites? And there may be some others, but we don't have the evidence for it. But what there certainly isn't is an appetite for every one of the required macro and micronutrients that animals need in their diet. And there are literally dozens of those. Um, instead, there's only a small number, five or thereabouts. And the reason for that is, uh, again, it comes down to taming the complexity of nutrition. If you're going to have a, a regulatory system that works, you need to be able to attend to a small number of things, as few as possible, and to take advantage of the correlations that occur naturally between the rest in natural foods. And that's what you see, that the all the other micronutrients come along for the ride if you regulate those five separate appetites. You don't need to bother about them. Uh, you'll get enough without having to go to the bother of evolving regulatory systems specific appetites for each. In the book, you talk about the logic of Darwin and how that kind of led you to believe that what you observed in locusts, which is kind of where we started a, a few moments ago, was likely something that you would observe in other animals. Can you, can you explain that thought and then maybe we can jump into some of the specific studies that you, you've done in humans looking at this? Well, the logic of, of Darwin is quite straightforward, and that is, you know, as the um, experimental chemist and origin of life theorist Leslie Orgel said, um, evolution is cleverer than you are. The kinds of problems that animals have to solve in the nutritional world are two things. They're incredibly important. A balanced and sufficient diet is one of the most important things that an animal can achieve. Um, and it, it, it underpins all of the other important things that animals achieve, including reproduction, um, migration, competition, or everything you can think of in evolutionary terms. So we reason that if evolution were to get one thing really right, it would be nutrition. And we knew that animals have different requirements for different nutrients, so we reasoned that they would have a way they have the mechanisms to ensure that all of those requirements are satisfied. And as we've said, we've tested that in many species. And then the obvious implication is, well, so too would that be the, the case for our own species. And you also mentioned, and I think this was quite neat, you sort of decided to flip the script a little bit. And instead of, of testing the hypothesis or theory on every single animal every species out there, you decided to look for the animal that would most likely disprove the theory. How did you, I mean, it seems like a fairly obvious thing to arrive at, but do you remember how you came to this and, and, and what eventuated from that sort of train of thought? 
Well, in a sense, we already had done that with locusts. You know, locusts were considered to be the greatest of indiscriminate feeders among the insects, and we had tested them and found that they're far from indiscriminate feeders. They're actually like exceptionally, meticulously picky and effective in the way that their food, they choose and combine foods to balance their diet. The standard view, of course, of locusts is that they invade in large numbers and they eat everything in their path. And actually, they kind of do. But the problem being, when you've got 100 billion locusts in a swarm and they're each eating their own body weight a day, then you'll find a swarm will eat everything. So it'll eat the same amount of food as the entire population of Sydney will in a week in a day. Um, But that doesn't mean that each individual animal isn't itself making very wise nutritional decisions and were it given the freedom to do so, it wouldn't regulate very precisely and indeed they do. So we were kind of misled by, you know, the biblical swarm notion of locusts. It's just a a sheer mass of numbers rather than a lack of um, ability at the individual level. So that was the first one. And then we, we, we headed to cockroaches, which seems um, similarly unlikely, in part because they've acquired this whole arsenal of other um, devices to help them on some of the most unpromising diets you can imagine. A cockroach can eat and digest just about everything. Um, but even though they have the, the capacity through their commensal bacteria and all sorts of other tricks to eat just about anything, if you give them an appropriate choice, they're, they're remarkably good um, at balancing their diet and they have the same abilities. Um, and then I guess the next, the next step was going to predators, yeah. Predators were the one thing that when we started showing that nutrient balancing was very general, firstly in herbivores and secondly in omnivores, predators were the one group that ecologists felt nonetheless would not need the mechanisms for nutrient balancing for two reasons they thought this. The first was that um, the belief that prey animals are generally balanced with respect to the requirements, nutritional requirements of predators. You are what you eat. And the second is that unlike uh, plants and the diets, complex diets of omnivores, the diets of predators are relatively constant in their balance. So if you eat everything that you capture, you will, as a predator, you will achieve your, uh, the required dietary balance. And so that was the background against which we reasoned, well, the ultimate test of this in an ecological context, at least, would be to examine whether predators like omnivores and herbivores also had these nutrient-specific appetites. And we found that, of course, they did. And that involved looking at spiders and predatory beetles and carnivorous fish and cats and dogs and even most recently David's worked on pandas, which seem not to be predators, um, at least not carnivores, you wouldn't think, but they, they kind of are. They come from a predatory. Of course, the group that they belong to is the carnivora, many of which are predators. And yet they are the most, um, in many respects, the most extreme herbivore among the mammals. Not only do they feed on a diet that really has the negative properties in the ecological context of plants, highly accentuated, specifically very high levels of fiber 
relative to macronutrients, very energy dilute, but they only feed on that group, the bamboos. So the question was, how can a carnivore evolve into this extreme herbivore? And what we found is that, like the rest of our work, if you don't look at it in terms of the density of macronutrients only, but you look at it in terms of the balance of macronutrients, the balance of macronutrients that pandas are eating in the bamboo diet is very, very similar to the balance of macronutrients that predators eat, about 50% of protein, um, the rest carbohydrate and very small amounts of fat. So that explained not only how they could transition from that major transition in dietary habits evolutionarily, but also why pandas have retained some of the um, adaptations, nutritional adaptations that normally you would associate with predators. Uh, For example, the gut microbiome is more like a predator than a herbivore microbiome. The gut structure is more like a predator. So there really are macronutritional predators, even though at the food level they eat they eat plants. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book plantproof.com forward slash book okay let's get back into it so to kind of summarize this so far animals including ourselves we have these kind of innate appetites for certain nutrients and when we're in a a natural environment where the food environment has not been manipulated we will naturally choose foods based on those appetites and we'll be consistent in, in, in what our carbohydrates and fat and protein looks like day in, day out. And we will consume not only the nutrients that our body requires, but also the right amount of energy. Absolutely. And that balance will change, obviously, as you go through your life course and according to your circumstances and your levels of physical activity and uh, ambient temperature, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, exactly. Those appetites track those changing needs in natural food environments without your having to have an app or a, a degree in dietetics or a computer or anything. It's just there and it's evolved such an exquisite set of mechanisms as a result of Darwinian natural selection. You've kind of alluded to this, but have you tested this in humans as well? We did a locust experiment on humans in Jamaica, and we found just like the locusts and cockroaches and other species, when provided with a range of dietary menus spanning 10% energy from protein to 25% energy from protein, the subjects, volunteer subjects in our study selected consistently and very tightly, a little bit like Stella the Baboon, a diet of approximately just under 15% of energy from protein. And we'd shown that um, in a sort of rudimentary way in a pilot experiment that we describe in the book um, involving students in, um, in Switzerland in a chalet in the mountains. And uh, that involved foods that were just normal and unadulterated um, supermarket-based foods. But the the study that we did in Jamaica and also another one we ran at um, the University of Sydney involved uh, 
covertly manipulating the composition of, of foods. So people didn't know that they contained 10 or 15 or 25% protein. Uh, we flavoured them similarly. We tested that they were equally palatable. And in that way, you can really get a much tighter control over the experiment. And when you find evidence of regulation, that tells you that it's something innate and not something that has been imposed um, psychologically on top of the food environment by the subjects. I have a sort of interesting theoretical question here or thought experiment uh, for you that's come to mind. So essentially protein is the strongest uh, sort of craving, the strongest appetite of the five, and we will, we will consume food until we hit that we satisfy that protein requirement. Is there a difference between, say, protein diluted foods that are ultra processed versus, say, white potato, for example, which is around 6% protein, but is very high on the satiety index? Do you, do you think if uh, a human was given just white potatoes to eat, it would overconsume those white potatoes in terms of their caloric intake to get enough protein. Well, there's uh, there's an interesting that that is an interesting question. What we do know is that the the limits to our capacity to track dilution of protein by eating more and more um, is probably just under about ten percent protein of total energy. If you drop below that, then people uh, find it hard to consume sufficient volume of food to sustain their protein intake. So you've reached the limit of the mechanism. And that's kind of interesting because if you look across human populations in the wild, you never find a human population which has sufficient food to eat, you know, it's not starving, in other words, that eats a diet that contains less than about 10% of protein of total energy, nor a population that will consume more than 25 or at most 30% of energy as protein. So that range seems to be the sort of limit of the, um, uh, the evolved mechanism, the me- mechanistic tolerance, if you like, of the appetite system. But yes, if you can find somebody with nothing but potatoes or, or nothing but donuts and chips might be slightly more palatable version, uh, then they will clearly overeat calories in the long term. You may need to leave them there with nothing else for a substantial period before they'll really show it. But yeah, you'll be driven to do that. You'll see certainly an increase in the craving for protein. And what, what's been shown many times now is that if you if you reduce protein below around 12, 11, 10% of, of total energy, then you get elevation of a, a hormone in, in circulation called FGF21, which um, we and other colleagues have demonstrated is the low protein appetite hormone. It's released by the liver, goes up in circulation when you're low in protein, and it stimulates a craving for protein and a selection of higher protein foods if they're available. Um, and of course, that makes you susceptible if your craving leads you in the direction of protein decoys, which are 
savory snack foods that taste like protein, but they don't contain any. They're just fat and carbs. I was going to ask you a question about the sort of mechanism of, of that protein craving. Is the body sort of literally measuring the available amino acids or is it responding to an inability to synthesize new tissues? Uh, what, what's the kind of mechanism going on there? I think it would seem important to kind of distinguish that. No, you're absolutely right. And it's an open question. And um, so there's two, two questions. Which are the key signaling amino acids? Um, because obviously protein, when it breaks down, breaks down into 20 different protein amino acids from which we then synthesize and construct our own proteins. Um, so which of those contribute to the signal? Um, there's, uh, there's certainly quite a lot of it, and we've conducted some of that research ourselves, looking into that mixture, uh, which is the, the key amino acid signal. And then accompanying that, there are these hormonal signals, and FGF21 is the first that's been discovered. And the question is, uh, is that signal released as a result of the inability to synthesize protein or uh, the rate at which protein has been broken down in lean tissue, some combination of those? Is it a measure of the steady state of, of lean tissue stores? Is that in muscle or is that in bone? There's a whole series of questions that are actually amongst, I would argue, the most important questions in the study of biology at the moment, trying to understand how these specific appetites, and in particular, the one for protein works, is a bit of a holy grail at the moment. But there's another thing, Simon, just getting back to the potatoes example, and that is that despite what Steve said, it's fundamentally, fundamentally different than eating a 5% protein ultra-processed food for a number of reasons. And one is that in the ultra-processed food, they have simple carbohydrates, sugars and highly refined starches. Um, the other is that there's zero fiber. In, um, in most ultra-processed foods, unless it's added secondarily as a food additive. Um, and then the potatoes to which you refer, I'm not sure about their composition, what the, com what the kind of carbohydrate is, but if you look in the wild at foraging human beings, then you'll see very quickly that those potatoes you're referring to are midway between natural foods and ultra-processed foods in the sense that they've been domesticated to have a much lower percentage of fiber. And in terms of satiety, where protein leaves off, fiber can play a really important role in taking on and limiting energy overconsumption on low-protein foods. The, the tubers that hunter-gatherers eat are very rich in fibers. And the Okinawan diet, you know, the, the yams, they, they're very rich in fiber. So ultra-processed foods are in a category of their own in terms of several mechanisms converging on um, the tendency for humans to overeat uh, those foods because they're designed to do that. Yeah, and, and just emphasising what David's just said, we recently published a, a large study in mice um, in which we parsed the type of carbohydrate relative to protein and it turned out to matter considerably in terms of the metabolic consequences. So uh, a lower protein, um, high carbohydrate diet has healthy life extending consequences providing the carbohydrate um, isn't 
highly digestible, simple carbohydrates. And it turned out that the very worst culprit was the um, high fructose corn syrup that's added abundantly to foods, um, particularly the ultra processed foods and beverages in North America. And that's a, a one-to-one mixture of fructose and glucose. And that was even worse than table sugar, which is a disaccharide of the same two monosaccharides, fructose and glucose. Yeah, it's a great point. I think, you know, in the in the media and and on social media, carbohydrates can be demonized, but it's very much an umbrella term. So distinguishing between different types is very important. An interesting little fact there, and you probably already know this, but with white potatoes, if you cook them and then cool them, the resistant starch uh, increases. Yeah, totally. And the resistant starch, low-protein, high-resistant starch diets were the healthiest of all in the mouse experiment. There you go. Keep those white potatoes, those cooked and cooled white potatoes in the salad. Uh, The other interesting thing that you mentioned there, David, is the addition of fiber to ultra-processed foods. And I often wonder, is is that sufficient to, to sort of mimic or replicate natural fiber found in whole foods? Well, that's a complex issue because fiber isn't only a component, it's also part of the structural matrix of plant foods. And when you have refined fiber added back, you're adding the component, but not the structural matrix. So fiber um, composes the cell walls of plants that contain the nutrients and other components that are more slowly digested and absorbed in plants than they are in a mixture, a reconstituted mixture of macronutrients and fiber. So the answer there is almost certainly no. It's not the same. It is different. Following on from the earlier points we were making on cravings and the different signals for these appetites, and you were talking about some of this not being fully understood yet that further science can hopefully unearth, would I be right in saying that these various changes in hormones or whatever the mechanism is, the downstream effect that we experience as a person is a craving for a different food, not a nutrient? For example, something sweet or something umami-flavored Am I thinking along the right track here? Totally right. And so colleagues in the Netherlands, for example, have put people in brain scanners and looked at which parts of their brain light up when they have umami put on their tongues when they're in different protein states. So they provide them with a period of protein deprivation, put them in the brain scanner, touch uh, their tongues with umami, And only with the taste of umami does their brain light up. So all the pleasure areas, all the areas that would be associated with cravings light up. So that's a specific brain reaction to being in a state of protein deficit. And it's specific to the taste cues associated with protein in in real foods. And it probably leaves us a little bit vulnerable to the food scientists that are working on on hijacking (laughs) our taste buds, right? It totally does. So hence the the barbecue-flavoured chip is a a particularly nasty um, protein decoy. If we sort of think more more broadly here, and you've alluded to it so far with with this talk about ultra-processed foods, 
and dilution of, of protein in our food environment. Can you explain why it only takes a small amount of protein dilution in the food system to result in, in huge amounts of, of weight gain and uh, you know, dramatic changes in public health? It's fundamental and sort of school-level um, geometry, Simon. It, it, if your protein targets is around 15% of your um, energy needs. So for us, protein is a, it's a macronutrient, but it's the, it's the minor of the macronutrients in terms of its proportional contribution. What that means is that if you dilute only by a percent or two from 15 down to 13%, let's say, to maintain the same absolute intake of protein, you've got to eat 15 or 20% more calories to do that if the protein is diluted with fats or, or, or carbs. It doesn't matter which. So hence we call it protein leverage. Um, a small change in protein can drive a big change in total intake, and it's, it's a function of the fact that it's the minor proportion of the calories in our diet and it's tightly regulated and that combination turns out to be a deadly one um, and when you think about it if you go back all the data that that exists indicates that over the 50 or 60 years since the uh, obesity epidemic really took off we've probably only seen a, a one or two percent dilution of protein in in the food supply um, in what people actually eat and that's of itself pretty remarkable because when you consider the, the flooding of the food system by these um, highly processed, highly palatable fats and carbohydrates, the fact that we've only been led off track by that small proportion is pretty remarkable. Um, but nonetheless, it gears up through this geometric um, influence, this leverage effect to drive overconsumption of calories. But there's a, there's a killer as well on top of that, and um, that is that let's say we were just fooled into eating more calories by the ultra-processed food environment. Um, as you got bigger, you require more uh, calories so to maintain your now bigger body. So you would expect the, the obesity epidemic to, to have risen and then plateaued. It hasn't. It's continued to go up. So there's something driving it. And what we showed was actually as you become um, more and more um, overweight, then you start to become more and more insulin resistant. And that in turn starts to um, increase your protein target because you become less efficient at keeping protein. You break your lean tissue down, you become resistant to building new lean tissue, and your liver burns unnecessarily, burns amino acids to generate um, glucose. And so you've got, a, as we use in the book, the analogy of there being a, a, a plug hole in the bath that's become leaky. Uh, and to get to the same level of water in the bath, your protein target, you now have to pour more water into the bath. And so as your protein target goes up, you're going to have to eat even more calories in a low-protein world to get to that higher target, which will make the problem worse. So you're trapped in a vicious cycle. To just pick up on a few numbers um, associated with that um, leveraging effect that Steve mentioned. So a dilution of 1.5% 
a dilution of protein in the diet gears up to about a 14% increase in the absolute amount of calories in the diet. So 1.5%, very small dilution, gives a 14% increase in calories. That's easily enough to generate an obesity epidemic. And if you look at the average composition of ultra-processed foods in the Australian environment, it centers on approximately 7% of protein. And that's a much greater dilution than the 1.5%. And the, the average Australian is, is consuming, what, around 42% of their total calories from these foods? Yeah, higher than that. But the, the figures that I've seen are around 50%. We've done a study in the United States showing that the highest um, a quintile. If you if you split the population, the um, diet survey data into five groups based on the percentage of daily calories contributed by ultra processed foods, the the highest quintile, the highest contribution is up at eighty percent on average. So there will be a fair number of people who are eating virtually a hundred percent of their diet in the United States from ultra processed foods, and Australia is not widely different than that. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Someone listening may be thinking, okay, well, the key here is just to eat lots of super protein rich foods. Lots of, let's load up on on lean red meat and chicken breast uh, and I'll lose weight, I'll be healthy. Uh, perhaps a low carb sort of keto diet or maybe even an all meat carnivore style diet. Why, why not just double down and, and eat lots of protein? More must be good, therefore even more must be even better. Um, well, it all comes back to, to the observation we made earlier. Why do animals bother to regulate um, to an upper limit as well as a lower limit of protein? The implication is that there are costs there. And so we set about and many others have now replicated what we found um, since, but we first started working in flies and then in mice and showed that if you force animals to overconsume protein beyond their target level by keeping them for extended periods on a higher than optimal protein to non-protein energy ratio, then they pay a price. They pay a price principally in terms of um, mid to early late life health being degraded, metabolic, cardiometabolic health outcomes are worse, um, and their lifespan is, is shortened. Um, and we've extended that work to try and understand the, the, the fundamental mechanisms. And then um, more recently to look at the age-specific mortality effects of being on these different diets. So if you're on a um, a high protein diet and you succeed in surviving to your very late life, then you'll do better on a higher protein diet in the very last years of your life because during that period you start to become very inefficient in using protein and you need more. So there are, there are nuances to that story, but essentially 
too much protein isn't a good thing. Now, what that means is you need to balance the benefits of a high-protein diet uh, against its longer-term costs. And there are benefits, and you've mentioned them, Simon, yourself. If you go onto a higher percent protein diet, you'll lose weight because you'll eat fewer calories because your protein appetite is um, telling you to stop eating before you get to your energy requirements to sustain your higher weight. Um, and that's a good thing if you need to lose weight. It's not necessarily a good thing uh, if you don't need to lose weight or you're not building muscle, you're not diabetic because there will be longer term costs. So it's understanding that relationship between healthy habitual diets and what you might call therapeutic dietary interventions where a keto diet or a very high protein diet may have some value and the benefits would outweigh the costs. It is the old-fashioned concept of a balanced diet. If too little protein is bad, it does not mean that too much is good. There's a balance. There's an intermediate. That applies to all animals, and we are no, no exception. Do you think the, the type of protein is important here at all? We, when, when I look at sort of this protein longevity conversation, there almost seems to be a few different camps. There's... there's there's one part of the community that talks about protein restriction, improving longevity, and you know you hear Volta Longo talking about this, and and lots of scientists and you guys, and and then you have the other side that say it's not so much about protein restriction; it's more about total calorie restriction. And then there's a bit of a conversation around plant versus animal protein and the different amino acid profile that they have. How do you sort of weigh all of that up? Where do you land? Uh, all of those things have some truth, and um, w one of the the, the um, really substantial benefits, I think, of taking nutritional geometry as as our framework is that we've been able to disentangle some of these things. So we've been able to disentangle calories from the ratio of protein to carbohydrate to fat in diets, um, and show that that you do get a benefit through calorie restriction, no question of that. But um, under ad libitum feeding, where you're able to eat what you want, you can overconsume calories and yet gain the benefit of a low-protein, high-carbohydrate diet, particularly if those carbohydrates are, um, as we said earlier, um, hard to digest. So you can disentangle those. There is no doubt a beneficial impact of a low-protein, high healthy carbohydrate diet independent of calorie intake. So I don't think there's any particular dispute around that anymore. The question of how calorie restriction provides benefit, whether that's through calories per se or whether it's through intermittent feeding or patterns of, of food intake, that's, that's a live discussion. And there's clearly a benefit to intermittent fasting and intermittent intake of calories as distinct from just the sheer number of calories. But the makeup of calories is clearly really important as well, particularly the ratio of protein to carbs. Now, the amino acid balance in, in protein is also really important. Um, we, we've shown, for example, that the ratio of branch chain amino acids to um, tryptophan is critical in determining the appetite suppressing effect of protein. 
We've also shown that the ratio of amino acids in protein to carbohydrate is particularly important. So you can have a very high branch chain amino acid load against a high carbohydrate background, and you won't turn on the um, pro-aging pathways, the conventional ones you hear about, mTOR and IGF-1 and so forth, but you will live less long because you will overconsume total calories because there seems to be regulation of tryptophan levels in the brain and they're competed with by branched-chain amino acids. So it's quite a mechanistically complex story. If you look at a population level, there's plenty of evidence that plant-based proteins seem to be more beneficial than animal-based proteins. Um, and uh, mechanistically, that may reflect amino acid balance. People listening are probably wondering what the pair of you think the optimal dietary pattern is, and you've described some of the characteristics. Would I be right in saying it's high in fiber, contains good amounts of protein, but not too much? and is low in ultra-processed foods. Would that be an accurate summary of your position? Yeah, high in plant-based foods, and all of that comes along for the ride. And it's high in micronutrients as well, high in fiber, as you say, good balance of, um, of macronutrients. What about as we enter our later years of life where maintaining lean muscle and, and good bone density uh, is particularly important for, for staying in good health. And protein recommendations uh, actually increase a little bit, I, I believe, from 65 years on. But often, often people in, in their later years seem to have a reduced appetite overall and, and possibly even consume less calories, which can then make it difficult to consume enough protein. Is this something that you've, you've thought about? Yes, yes, we've been actually we've been working most recently a little bit earlier in life um, in women around the the menopause transition where there seems to be uh, a slightly accelerated um, aging process around the um, the increase and breakdown in protein in bone and in muscle, um, and we think that may. Um, interact with food environments to generate some of the, the health consequences we see around rapid weight gain um, around that period. But yes, as we all age, um, we get to the point where we become naturally, as we get older, a little bit more insulin resistant. We become uh, more prone to break down our own lean protein stores in muscle and in bone. Um, we become more prone to breaking down protein in our livers to generate glucose when we don't really need to. And these are all the things that mean that we need to eat more protein. But at the same time, and we've seen this in our mice, the whole regulatory mechanism, the, the, uh, the efficiency with which the appetites work seems to break down a little bit as we get really old. So we, we, we become less good at regulating and that seems to be a function of the whole system starting to go into entropy. It's starting to break down. Different components aren't working as well as they used to and our appetites don't seem to work as well um, either. Is that because I'm just thinking from an evolutionary point of view that this system would have evolved and been these mechanisms, these appetites would have been primarily created to uh, to reach the age uh, of reproduction uh, 
with reproduction in mind, not necessarily longevity. Does that is that sort of coming into um, this conversation here? That's exactly right. So in evolutionary terms, longevity is a means for reproduction. Um, typically, a species had a set schedule of reproduction, as do humans, between a certain time period, age, age range, and beyond that, evolution is very weak to optimize and maintain the mechanism. So you get a kind of entropic rundown beyond the age of, of reproduction because natural selection um, is very, it doesn't have the capacity to optimize beyond reproduction. Think about cancer. Um, if, if genes for cancer um, prior to reproductive age are very, very costly because they jeopardize your reaching to jeopardize your reproductive output. But once you pass those genes on, then cancer can't be selected against because they're already out there in the population in your offspring. And cancer is just one extreme example of the more general rundown that takes place beyond reproduction um, in terms of biological mechanisms. So with all of that sort of in mind, if we're, if we're still talking about this population, people in their later years, uh, what do you think of of supplemental protein, be it whey or plant protein, these isolated kind of forms of protein? Are these an effective way for such a population with lower overall appetite to maintain muscle mass and, and bone density? Well, look, um, it becomes then a therapeutic intervention, doesn't it? It becomes a way of how, how do we use diet to treat some of the um, the issues to do with advanced aging, uh, how effective they are. Well, there's there's a reasonable literature, isn't there, indicating that if you increase dietary protein with good amino acid balance and you accompany it with um, aerobic and resistance exercise, then you'll have better outcomes. You're better able to hang on to that lean tissue, prevent it from breaking down. So we can control entropy to a degree, but Beyond that, it just we're all going to fall apart at some stage. The hope is that we do it quickly after a healthy life. That's right. In, in keep that health span as, as long as possible. To, to sort of wind up here, the, the root cause of, of our overconsumption of calories seems to be this changing in environment, uh, a mismatch between the foods that we're surrounded by and our biological needs. With all of the various forces at play, particularly the, the vested interest from large transnational food corporations who, let's be honest, are primarily concerned about their profits uh, and, and that's their right, their commercial entities and, and therefore they want us to double down on, on their hyperpalatable foods. What's the answer here? Is it to work with them to increase the amount of protein in the foods is it as simple as that or does the entire food environment need to change such that we see less ultra-processed foods in general? That's a very big and complex and challenging question. All of the studies that have been done suggest that the key stakeholders here, of course, are consumers, the industry and government. There are approaches that can be taken at each of those levels to remedy the problem, but all of the research suggests that the only way that things really move forward in an effective way is if those stakeholders work together. 
So you've got government buy-in, you've got consumer buy-in, and you've also got industry buy-in. So what we really need is high-level umbrella organizations, advocacy groups that can coordinate that collaboration between the stakeholders towards an outcome that, frankly, is in all of our interests. No government wants to have the obesity and health cost statistics we see in Australia. No consumers want to die of diabetes and associated complications. And industry certainly doesn't want to be associated with all of that. So our interests are aligned. It's just a question of coordinating action in a way that realizes those interests. Do you see there is a way where those those big transnational food corporations can reformulate and and those foods can still exist in our food environment and we can overcome uh, the, the sort of obesity pandemic? Or do we need to completely change the foods that are on the shelves in terms of not seeing the number of, of ultra-processed packaged foods? The problem I have with – one of the problems I have with reformulation – is that there have been many attempts to date to do that, and they've just produced more of the same. So, for example, you mentioned earlier on the addition of fiber to foods. Well, that solves one problem, but it leaves almost hidden in the background other problems in association with that food. So, um, for example, add fiber, but you've still got a very high salt content. You've solved one problem, but not another problem. And of course, as you yourself said, that industry is motivated not primarily towards improved health outcomes, but towards um, maintaining profitability outcomes. So that's what's always going to motivate industry in their reformulation um, efforts. That's my concern with reformulation. And also, as I said earlier, it's not just components, but it's actually the food structure, the matrix that makes an important difference to its health effects. And reformulation of ultra-processed foods doesn't solve that problem. So ultimately, whole foods are the, are the, the answer. Processed foods are fine as a means of entertainment, but they are not fine as a means of nutrition and substituting a proper diet with them. And I'm curious, as scientists who have been working on this for such a long time and are clearly experts in this area. Are you, are you involved in this conversation? Is there a, a way for you to get involved in, in the various conversations that are talking about the Australian food environment and Australian dietary guidelines, et cetera? We're busy setting up at Sydney at the moment um, a new centre, Centre for Food Systems Transformation, which is focused. It's a massively, it's building on the successful model of the Charles Perkins Centre, which Steve is the academic director and I have the nutrition theme there. It's building on that to focus specifically on the Australian food system and tackle these kinds of problems in a very richly interdisciplinary um, environment, bringing together social scientists, um, medical scientists, ecologists like myself, very wide range of, of disciplines. And also it is transdisciplinary in the sense that it extensively involves interacting with stakeholders beyond academia, such as government, uh, consumers um, and industry. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, David, Stephen, for, for joining me. Like I said at the outset, I absolutely loved your book. I really recommend all of the listeners go out and, and grab a copy. I hope we can catch up sometime in person and, and dive even deeper. If folks would like to stay in touch 
with the work that you're doing or follow along on the socials or uh, keep an eye on what you're doing at Sydney University, where's the the best place for them to go? Well, there's uh, Eat Like Animals, the our Twitter handle and the Charles Perkins Centre. If you look up the Charles Perkins Centre, you'll find our website. And as David said, it's a, a remarkable place that we've set up at the University of Sydney where we've brought philosophers and um, historians and novelists and metabolic scientists and clinicians and ecologists and others all together in the one place. So it, that's what we need. We need to, to take all of the different disciplines that we have and bring them to bear on these um, amazingly complex but ultimately significant problems. We've got to solve this one. Thank you so much, guys. Let's do it again soon. It'll be great. Thanks, Simon. Look forward to it, Simon. There we go, my friends. How did that one land? Further evidence that a minimally processed, high-fibre, plant-rich diet is beneficial for our health and longevity. And what about the importance of protein? As you will know if you have read my book in part three, I make the case that we should be fiber-obsessed and protein-aware. I think often in the plant-based community, the importance of protein is somewhat overlooked. It's unrealistic to just simply eat and expect to consume optimal amounts of protein. While it's not impossible, in my experience, many don't, particularly as they get older and their overall appetite reduces. Optimal amounts of protein to help you maintain lean muscle, build strong bones, and feel satiated with your meals usually requires some awareness. In the food pyramid that I put forward in part three of my book, also downloadable on my website, you'll see that I make note of leaning further into the legume food group, the legume food group, and a little less into whole grains when you get over the age of around 60. This means consuming more foods like tofu, tempeh, lentils, chickpeas, hummus, legume pasta, even seitan and mycoprotein, and a plant-based protein powder, if that's right for you, which can be easily blended into a morning smoothie or mixed into oatmeal. I suggest making sure there is a protein-rich food in each of your meals as a bare minimum, aiming to have at least four servings of these foods each day. And on top of that, sticking to lots of fruits and vegetables and minimizing those ultra-processed packaged foods. And if your diet does include animal protein, keeping that to a small portion rather than it becoming the hero of the plate, much like the Blue Zones. Now, before I let you go, you may have worked out that this conversation was recorded in the middle of Sydney's COVID lockdowns late 2021. My hope, as I mentioned, is that next time I get the opportunity to sit down with David and Stephen in person in Sydney, I'd love to share more of their personal stories and scientific learnings with you. There's certainly plenty more to unpack there. So keep an eye out for that. Finally, I have some exciting news to share with you in the coming weeks. Right now, we are at episode 194. All will be revealed closer to episode 200. In the interim, please make sure that we're connected on Instagram and that you are signed up to the email newsletter at plantproof.com. That way, you'll be able to see a few of the teasers and hints that I drop over the coming weeks. All right, with that, I think we did it. 
Thanks for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and look forward to doing it all again soon. Enjoy the week ahead, make it a good one, and let's meet back here for episode 195. Sound like a deal? Good. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.